from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the CER podcast. My name is Camino Martera Martinez. I'm the head of the Brussels office and I'll be your host today. On October 7th, the Palestinian terrorist group Hamas launched a massive attack on Israeli grounds. We can't know the true figures in this conflict because it is very difficult to verify them. So I'm very wary of giving you exact figures, but just so that we understand the magnitudes of this conflict and the magnitude of what's going on at the moment in the Middle East. The Hamas-run Ministry of Health in the Gaza Strip says that around 10,000 Palestinians, half of them children, have been killed since October 7th. On their side, Israel says there's been at least 1,400 people dead. And Hamas, in the attack they launched on October the 7th, kidnapped at least 240 people, not all of them, by the way, of Israeli nationality. We've got Europeans and Americans and other nationalities involved in this as well. This is not just another eruption of a conflict in the Middle East. Israel itself says this is the equivalent of 9-11. Obviously, Israel, since October 7th happened, launched a massive operation against the Gaza Strip with the state aim of erasing Hamas from the Strip. So because there are so many parallels, right, in between the war on terror and the kind of operation that Israel is conducting in Gaza and also the international outrage that this has caused because of what some claim is a completely disproportionate response from Israel. So I'm telling you all this not because we are going to talk about the history of the conflict or the ramifications of the conflict for the Middle East and other such things. This has been discussed at length by many people ever since October 7 and obviously even before that. But today we at the CR wanted to look at the implications that this conflict has on the European Union and on Europe more widely both when it comes to internal dynamics. Is the European Union more divided than it was before October the 7th? Is this the end of the geopolitical European Union? But also externally, what is the role of the European Union in this conflict, if there is any? And what about EU-US relations? And of course, what is the interaction in between this conflict and the ongoing war in Ukraine? To do that, I have the pleasure to be joined today by Natalie Dotti, the director of the Institute for International Affairs in Rome. Hello, Natalie, and thank you for joining us. Hello, Camino. Lovely being with you. And Luigi Scazzieri, senior research fellow at the CR, who's been writing quite a lot about this as well. Hi, Camino. Hi, Natalie. Natalie, you've been quite critical of Europe's role in the conflict. What would you think the role has been? And what should Europe be doing? Well, yes, Camino, I have been critical. I'm, in fact, I've almost been desperate, really, sort of watching really rather pathetic 
role or rather non-role in this unfolding drama. A non-role to the extent that it's very difficult to play a role when you don't have a united position. And this is, I think, you know, sort of the biggest difference with respect to what we've been doing or trying to do over the last almost two years now over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In the case of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, there had, of course, been a long-sought consensus that essentially was built beginning in the early 80s, if you go back to the Venice Declaration, and then culminating in the late 1990s, early 2000s, at a time in which we still believed in a Middle East peace process. So over the course of the best part of two decades, basically, there had been this long-sought European position really articulating what our vision was in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which of course, as we know, is the two-state solution and on the 1967 borders, East Jerusalem as a capital, and of course, Israel's security. And the truth is, I think that particularly over the last decade and a bit, I would say, actually that consensus has been crumbling in Europe. And we have avoided confronting the issue. I mean, if you think of it, actually, it was very rare that the council, let alone the European Council, um, actually addressed the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So we kind of ducked the question. And the truth is that we ducked it largely because that consensus had been fraying really for quite some time, particularly as a number of member states began tilting further and further towards Israel. And of course, Israel itself has been governed recently by governments that explicitly reject the two-state solution. So the minute in which of course, the conflict didn't start on October 7th, but it re-erupted in this dramatically violent form uh, on and since October 7th. We obviously couldn't avoid addressing the issue. And so those divisions that had been bubbling under the surface kind of exploded and so coming to your question, there hasn't been a European role in the conflict because you can't have a role if you don't know what you want. And, you know, the European Council, and in particular, European Council President, Charles Michel, in many respects, has been doing more over the last few weeks than he probably has over the last four years, as far as foreign policy is concerned, you know, sort of did put quite a bit of energy and effort into trying to cobble together a European position after days of cacophony, basically, coming from different quarters in Europe. But the ink wasn't dry on those European Council conclusions that, you know, rather weakly said Israel's right to self-defense in line with international humanitarian law, that literally the day after, Europe split threefold at the United Nations General Assembly over a resolution calling for a humanitarian ceasefire. And here we are, you know, sort of, again, difficult to play a role if you don't know what you want. Yeah, the UN resolution to me was very telling. We've got the majority of member states who abstain, actually, and sort of a minority calling for a ceasefire humanitarian pause, showing very much what the division in Europe is about this conflict. I sometimes wonder, and this is a question, Natalie, that is a bit off left field, but I sometimes wonder, do we understand this conflict in Europe? Is this the reason why it is so difficult for us to have a united position? Do we really understand what's at stake and sort of the historical context? Or do we just try and, and play it by ear in a way? 
I think that several things play into this. Very clearly, there is a sort of instinctive, knee-jerk, and entirely justified reaction in solidarity with Israel, given Europe's role at the very origin of all this, that is not necessarily sort of front and center of everyone's minds, sort of, you know, on a day-to-day basis, but the minute in which there is an attack on Israel's security, that historical memory immediately comes to the fore. And it's obviously particularly prominent in some member states, of course, first and foremost, Germany, where, you know, it is no coincidence that Israel is considered a reason of state. And so I think, you know, sort of that is is very deeply ingrained in a European reaction, which doesn't necessarily mean, though, coming to question, that there is then a a sort of deep understanding of what has happened since 1948, and in particular since 1967, and in particular since the collapse of the Middle East peace process in in the 2000s. And, you know, I've always been very struck by the way in which, if you take, for instance, you know, European, both media and political debate, how little this conflict is actually talked about. Obviously, now we talk about it a lot. But if you think about the moments in which violence broke out in a very explicit form, particularly coming from Gaza in previous Mm -hmm. years, so 2021, 2018, 2014, 2008, 2009, Every time, particularly in the more recent re-eruptions of violence, so 2021, 2018, I remember sort of being in, in kind of TV shows in which people were talking about it as if there was the emergence of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And so mm-hmm. in a sense, you know, not looking at what was happening as a moment in a much, much longer story, but just taking the snapshot of the moment. And I think this is true of the media debate, but I think it's also true of political debate. And of course, if you only take that snapshot and you don't look at the movie, the rather horrific movie that has been unfolding over the years, of course, basically, your positions are going to be essentially determined by the emotional draw towards either one side or the other, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than having that more structured position that is the product, basically, of an understanding of the conflict as it has evolved over decades. Yeah, absolutely. Luigi, you recently wrote a piece for us called Europe and the Gaza Conflict. In there, you basically said Europe has only bad or terrible options. Can you walk us through all these options and can you find maybe some reason for optimism? That is difficult. And broadly speaking, I I share Natalie's assessment of Europe's divisions and how those have hindered its response. I think there's also, in many ways, a temptation for us Europeans to focus on the divisions, which, by the way, are between member states, but also in in European societies. But that's in part because I think there's a a clear lack of, of European influence over this conflict. And that doesn't mean that Europe didn't have influence in the past and that it could have done things very differently. But I think, unfortunately, as things stand today, there are only bad options. And the reason is that essentially Israel is in a deep state of shock after what happened on uh, on October 7th. And it's decided that it wants to essentially remove Hamas from power in the Gaza Strip. And that's because it, it thought that the group could be dealt with, that it could be deterred, and that proved impossible. That doesn't mean that Israel has a plan for the day after. And there are several just scenarios that are very difficult to to imagine. So this idea that the Palestinian Authority might take over, well, that's going to be very, very difficult. But ultimately, the only thing that seems to affect Israel's calculation is what the US thinks. So I think Europeans have influence in this conflict 
to the degree that they can basically persuade the US that many of Israel's actions are completely against their interests, Washington's interests, Israel's own interests. Now, in terms of what can be done in uh, in concrete terms, well, I mean, obviously trying to do everything possible to end the slaughter of civilians in Gaza and to improve mm. the humanitarian situation. So this idea of supplying Gaza by sea is something that I think Europeans should try to pursue. And of course, mm. just trying to be much tougher in pushing Israel to be proportionate and to respect international law and calling out crazy ideas that are coming from parts of the Israeli government and the Israeli right about transferring the Gaza population to Egypt, for example. And probably the way to do this is to make the case in Washington, because I don't think Israel is particularly willing to listen to Europeans. And secondly, I think there's a lot to be done to prepare for things to get worse. If if the conflict expands, yes, at the moment, Hezbollah doesn't seem like it intends to join, but there can be miscalculation. There's plenty of room for that, given that there's constant strikes going on from Hezbollah into northern Israel and vice versa. And that can then, in a very negative scenario, even extend to the Gulf and to potential repercussions in terms of Iran deciding to hinder the traffic of energy through the Straits. So there's a lot of things that can go wrong that I think Europeans need to be planning for. And the third thing, which actually is the planning for, eventually the fighting will end. Even this mm-hmm. out of fighting will end. And Europeans have admit that their policy over the past a decade, at least, has completely failed. And help to actually set the path for the two-state solution if they actually want one. And that has to start, I think, now, even before the fighting ends, in terms of empowering the PA, essentially. Israel doesn't want to run Gaza, even if it eliminating Hamas is going to be extremely difficult, even if that doesn't happen then you really need a Palestinian counterpart that is empowered. And for that to happen, you need, I think, two things to happen very quickly. One of them is to essentially completely end settler violence, which is Mm -hmm. unacceptable. And I think the US and Europe should be much, much tougher on Israel on this. And in the second instance, ensuring that the Palestinian Authority actually is able to manage more of the West Bank, because there's no reason why its civilian authority and uh, and jurisdiction should be limited to such, such small areas. So these steps need to happen. And if they don't, then I don't think that even if Israel succeeds in eliminating Hamas, that would be a particularly long-lived success, even if you could call it a success. Yeah, absolutely. I think we are going back to the conversation that we had about that we are having about the Ukraine war, right? We need to plan for the war, but we also need to plan for the day after. Natalie, do you agree with Luigi? What do you think that the European Union's role or Europe's role should be after the fight stops, if it does stop? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think what there should be is a little bit of soul searching, as Luigi was saying also, concerning what we should have done. I mean, if we got to this point, it is also, I mean, not predominantly, but it's certainly also because of our complicity. And mm-hmm. that complicity essentially took the form of, as I was saying earlier, sticking our heads in the sand and kind of buying into also this Israeli narrative that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was something that didn't actually need to be resolved. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, Israel's normalization with the Arab world could continue uh, regardless of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And we bought into it. I mean, you know, it was only a few weeks before the October the 7th, when, you know, sort of, Commission President von der Leyen happily embraced the India-Middle East corridor and said, you know, global gateway funds would pour into this initiative. And ultimately, the EMEC 
project that was unveiled at the G20 summit in New Delhi was precisely part of that logic. You know, it was precisely part of this corridor connecting the Gulf and Israel to Europe and no word said of the Palestinians. So at the very least, I think we should go back to the drawing board and recognize the fact that we've been part of this problem. I mean, we weren't obviously the main authors of this catastrophe, but we played into it. And what are we therefore willing to actually change in terms of how we've been going about this? To what extent we are actually willing to use the objectively limited instruments that we have, but actually use those instruments to leverage and exert some sort of influence, be it on on Israel, be it on the Palestinians. We have never done this, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we have never even remotely considered using the instruments that we have to exert leverage. And now, as I was saying earlier, we're not actually even that sure we even know what we want as far as the solution to the conflict is is concerned. I think even assuming that we do all this, I simply, though, wanted to highlight how extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible, the Mm. situation has become. You know, Mm. let us assume for the sake of argument, and it really is for the sake of argument, that Hamas is indeed eradicated from the Gaza Strip. Firstly, how long are we actually talking about? I mean, if you think that it took the United States to eradicate ISIS from Mosul nine months. And ISIS compared to us is basically kind of kindergarten, right? I mean, <laughs> hardly air capacities, no one backing, no one politically backing ISIS, mm-hmm. no roots in society, not a government force, not a political force. I mean, honestly, a kindergarten. It took the US nine months. We are at almost 10,000 deaths after one month of this operation. So if this is to eradicate Hamas, we're talking about, I don't know, a year, a year and a half, two years. Is this actually feasible? Is it feasible politically? Let's say that in a year and a half, here is what we have. We have a Gaza without Hamas. And then what Hmm. happens? I mean, then you have a almost 90-year-old Mahmoud Abbas that marches back into Gaza to reassert authority on tens, if not hundreds of thousands of deaths. I just can't picture this. I just can't see the dynamics. And I know that this is also what the United States is trying to work towards, but I just tragically just don't see the dynamic that would lead to this situation. And so I think essentially, on the one hand, we have an internal consensus that we have to reconstitute. We need to Mm -hmm. go back to the drawing board and ask ourselves whether we're actually willing to use those instruments. But then we've got this even tougher problem at hand in which even if we were to do those first two things, is that even a remote possibility anymore? Yeah, and I guess complicating things even further, we've got a war in Ukraine, right? And we've got elections on this side of the Atlantic and on the other side of the Atlantic next year. So can I ask you both, what do you think this conflict means for Europe's role in the war in Ukraine. Can the European Union or Europe, once again, deal with two wars at the same time? And whether, and this is a debate that we have in Brussels a lot since October 7th, whether this is the end of geopolitical Europe. In terms of the impact, I think there's there's three that I can think of. And the first is that, of course, it distracts European countries from Ukraine. We've already Mm -hmm. seen Whether they let themselves be distracted is another matter, but distraction is there because it forces many member states to look at the the threat of destabilization from their south once again. And Mm -hmm. potentially the need to do that obviously increases if the conflict were to become broader than just Israel and Hamas, creating, for example, additional funding needs, which in turn... Mm -hmm. 
not necessarily for this package of assistance to Ukraine, but might complicate the discussion as far as future packages are concerned, because Ukraine will keep on needing support for the long term. It's also the impact within European societies that have kind of become more polarized, and then perhaps also having to be very mindful once again of the threat of terrorism. And then sort of the second pillar in how I think about it is the US, which has underpinned the European strength of the European response against Russia's uh, attack on Ukraine. I think Mm -hmm. Europeans would have probably been responding in a far weaker manner had it not been for the US providing the overall framework. And it's clear that there is a degree of overlap between what Israel needs and what Ukraine needs, and also in terms of political attention that the US system, the political system that Congress can devote to these conflicts. So it becomes harder internally for us to support Ukraine, and it's Mm -hmm. up to us to overcome that challenge. And then I think it also becomes more difficult to marshal international support for Ukraine because the conflict between Israel and Hamas is just huge ammunition to the argument that the West, and including Europe, is guilty of double standards. And Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we condemn uh, Russian attacks on civilians in Ukraine extremely firmly, but we're reticent to do so in the case of Israel. And I think that narrative now risks, essentially is entrenched. And we're going to have to fight very, very hard to shift that, or it will just become much harder to, to gather up support for Ukraine in international fora, because I think countries will end up just resenting the West more and more for what they see as its hypocrisy. In terms of what this means for a geopolitical Europe, I mean, I thought that the idea of the geopolitical awakening was a bit of chest thumping, perhaps. Yes, Europe mm-hmm. had responded strongly to the war in Ukraine, but it was also because it was a uniting case, one that was so morally clear cut and that it triggered unity between member states. And that is something that other conflicts don't do to the same extent. But at the same time, I think one of the things that changed after the conflict in Ukraine was that Europe started to develop a new foreign policy outlook that's more attuned to the realities of the more threatening environment that it faces, including becoming much more skeptical about the protection that economic interdependence affords. And that's not something that is undone just because one conflict triggers this unity rather than unity between Mm -hmm. states. So I think it's a nuanced picture. Natalie, of course, I think one of the main beneficiaries, and you've written about this, of all this disunity and all these multiple conflicts with the world that is increasingly splitting into two blocks and being increasingly unstable are China and Russia. Do you think that the European Union can then have its attention divided and, and can actually, as I was saying before, can we actually fight these two wars? I think we're just right. I think it's worth making, in this respect, a distinction between the US and Europe in the sense mm-hmm. that when it comes to the US, there is something, quote unquote, objective about it. Insofar mm-hmm. as the United States provides military assistance to Israel, there is a trade-off there and we're seeing it play out dramatically. But there is a trade-off there. You know, I mean, if support for Israel increases, this makes a debate on military assistance to Ukraine, which is troubled as is, become even more complicated. Now, Mm -hmm. that doesn't apply to Europe in the sense that we don't provide military assistance to Israel. And so there isn't an objective trade-off. You know, the military support that Europe provides to Ukraine will continue as easily or as not easily as it would have done regardless of the war on the Middle East. Mm -hmm. The debates on enlargement will continue regardless of war in the Middle East. So as far as actual policy, I would say the trade-off 
layoff is not there or certainly not to the same degree as it is in the United States. Mm -hmm. As far as a distracted public debate, I mean, perhaps because I'm sitting in Italy where public debate on Ukraine has just been so catastrophic that, frankly speaking, the less we talk about it, the better it is. Um, I don't see a, a massive problem there either. I think the main problem is what Luigi was pointing to, and it is our broader global standing and the fact that our positioning on this war in the Middle East has really confirmed all the worst criticisms and stereotypes of Mm. Europe's hypocrisy and double standards and immorality and colonialism. And honestly, the list is directly wrong. And it is very difficult to shift that debate if precisely what you're doing is precisely reconfirming exactly all those views. Literally, I think over just a few days, whereas the war in Ukraine all of a sudden sort of woke us up to this reality that the global south doesn't automatically agree with us and some degree of diplomatic outreach and rethinking how is it that our relationship with other countries in the world has to be rethought some work that was going into this it has been completely erased and hollowed out by the middle east and it's very difficult to bring it back to even the place which was very difficult that we were before unless we rectify our position Mm -hmm. on the middle east and i don't see that frankly speaking, happening at the moment. Well, thank you very much, Natalie Luigi, for walking us through all the possible problems that we are going to see in Europe and beyond stemming from this conflict. I think it's been really useful. I think this conversation has been extremely enlightening as of what the implications are for the war in Ukraine and for European unity and support and what kind of things can be done, should be done and probably won't be done. Thank you very much for listening. This has been another episode of the CR podcast. You can find us in SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.